Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Donald Trump's relentless efforts to escape accountability continue across multiple courts and jurisdictions, but the more important events of the week occurred elsewhere, though they bore the unmistakable stamp of his malign influence. The Supreme Court of Alabama declared that under that state's law, just a fertilized egg and an IVF test tube is entitled to the same protection and rights as any human being, meaning the patient who accidentally dropped three couples' fertilized eggs can be held liable for wrongful death. The decision's disconcerting implications had Republicans in Alabama and Trump himself working to limit them. Yet the opinion seems to be only the logical outgrowth of the life begins at conception mantra that several states adopted as their official policy in the wake of the green light from the U.S. Supreme Court Dobbs opinion overruling Roe v. Wade. Special Counsel David Weiss, who's prosecuting Hunter Biden, told a federal court that the man who appears to have been the main source for the allegations about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's influence peddling with the Burisma company is a serial liar who's been working, moreover, with Soviet intelligence to peddle misinformation to the U.S. and that his account of the Biden's interactions with the company was manufactured. The demolition of his account seemed to leave the Republicans with even less to work with in their already struggling impeachment inquiry, though they soldier on undeterred. On the domestic political front, many erstwhile advocates of replacing Joe Biden on the top of the ticket have come around to the inevitability of a Biden-Trump face-off in November and are turning to the question of how to blunt the concerns that previously had led them to want a different nominee. To work through these signs of the times in our deeply divided country and assess their implications for a coming election of unsurpassed importance, we welcome three of the most experienced and respected political analysts in the country. And they are... Jonathan Alter, an author, filmmaker, columnist, and MSNBC political analyst. He's written five political and historical books, and in 2021, he launched a newsletter, Old Goats Ruminating with Friends, that's devoted to tapping the wisdom and experience of some remarkably accomplished guests. I also want to say, John, isn't this right, that you've interviewed like the last 10 presidents or something crazy like that? Pretty close. I've interviewed nine of the last 10, either before, during, or after they left office. The only one I've missed uh, going back to Nixon, who I interviewed, is Reagan. The rest of them I've spent time with at one point or another. But EJ probably has too. Well, welcome back as always. Thanks. And speaking of EJ, EJ Dion is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post and a university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. He appears regularly on NPR and MSNBC. Welcome back to Talking Feds, E.J. Dion. It is always good to be with you and to catch your brilliant legal analysis elsewhere. <laughs> Ditto. We're going we're gonna to turn on you here to ask you to tell us what's going on. Bring it, bring it, bring it. And finally... 
Senator Heidi Heitkamp, the first female senator elected from North Dakota, where she served from 2013 to 2019. After leaving the Senate, she co-founded the One Country Project, which helps Democrats reconnect with rural voters before becoming the director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. She's also a contributor on CNBC and ABC. Thank you so much for joining us, Senator Heitkamp. Thank you. One other quick thing on that, just a, a plug for, for the Institute of Politics here. In a, about three weeks, I'm going to go to Chicago, my hometown, and take part in a symposium that David Axelrod is sponsoring there on political conventions that took place in Chicago. Oh, fun. The date is March 20th at the IOP in Chicago. All right. The last day of winter. Bring in the spring in Chicago with Alter, Axelrod, Heitkamp, and everyone else. In the meantime, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled this week that because an Alabama statute defines children to include unborn children, a trespasser in an IVF clinic who picked up three frozen fertilized eggs, I think what scientists would call blastocysts, uh, and then, of course, immediately dropped them, could be held liable for wrongful death, same as for the uh, negligence causing the death of any human being. So in an opinion sprinkled with religious references, but not a lot of legal reasoning, the court held that the uh, fertilized egg were human beings bearing the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his Glory. Senator, maybe I can start with you because of your wealth of experience in the Senate and the middle of the country. Did the opinion shock you? I think if you start from the concept that life begins at conception and you define that as fertilization, I mean, the logic comes. The problem is that that may be logical in that chain of thinking, but the American public's like, what? This divided cell thing is the same as a human baby. And the great irony of this, quite frankly, Harry, is as we're watching protection of basically cells divided over here, we are not protecting women who suffer from horrible conditions, who unfortunately have to terminate their pregnancy late in life. They go to the emergency room or they go to a doctor in Texas and they're denied health care at the risk of infection for themselves. And so the American public right now is looking at all of this and saying, where is common sense? And this is exactly what we warned about when Roe v. Wade was reversed. And now you're seeing it play out. And I want to make this point. It's incredibly bad politics for the Republican Party. First of all, the senator's right that if you follow the logic, it leads to this outcome. And the Right to Life movement has actually held this view for a long time. It's not what they tended to talk about a lot because IVF is obviously very popular among people. I, I saw a survey the other day that a third of Americans either have had this or know someone who has had a child because of this. And you know, most human beings think that if somebody wants to bring a child into the world, that's a good thing. And secondly, I think this underscores why the term reproductive rights exists, because this argument isn't simply about abortion. It's about reproductive rights all the way up and down the line, including the ability of someone to have children. Thirdly, 
Judge Parker's decision was theologically quite sophisticated. He's got Jeremiah, Augustine, uh, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, good for him uh, for being theologically sophisticated. But I think even the, the I know staunch right to lifers who would argue we are not for this for religious reasons. I had a brilliant right to life student write a great paper on the secular arguments for her position because she had concluded that religious arguments are not admissible in a pluralistic society. And this was a remarkable fact. Lastly, I started where the politics ends, which is this is an unbelievably unpopular decision. And you saw already Republicans in swing districts like Michael Waller in New York, one of the key examples, running away from this as quickly as possible. And no, it was no surprise that President Biden jumped on this right away and said, this is what happens because of the Trump appointed Supreme Court. And we're going to be hearing a lot of that. Well, I think you can understand the unpopularity when you figure that I believe the numbers are 14% of fathers and 11% of potential mothers cannot parent children biologically. And so it's a pretty ironic and arguably cruel position that could in no way be characterized as pro-family to say to them, your only option is adoption. You are not allowed to use this technology, which has been available for, I guess, about 40 years now, in order to bring a child into your life. And when you think about the people now in Alabama and possibly soon enough in other parts of the country who desperately want children, believe in family, and are denied the opportunity to have children because of what some guy in a robe says, you get a sense of why this is so unpopular. But I think the other kind of broader thing that's going on is I think it's another move toward what some writers call the great sorting, where you have people who live in communities with like-minded politics. So you have a lot of conservatives right now who are moving to South Carolina. In fact, 10% of the voters in the South Carolina primary weren't even there when Nikki Haley was governor. These are conservatives from other parts of the country who are moving there. You could see conservatives starting to move to states like Alabama and even greater numbers than they already do, and liberals moving out of these red states. So in the medium and long term, the blue states are going to get bluer and the red states are going to get redder. And this decision contributes to that. This did not outlaw the procedure, but it made it virtually impossible for people who provide this procedure to continue to provide it without great risk, both civilly and criminally. And so the other thing I want to say about this and that no one has really talked about is if you are wealthy enough in Alabama to fly to another state to have this procedure and, and do this, conceive this way, then good for you. But if you're somebody who already is struggling to afford this, and this is a very expensive procedure, this has just thrown another huge roadblock in front of you in terms of having children. So there's real class consequences to this decision in Alabama as well. Could I just say, John is quite right about the sorting that's going on. But I think on IVF, if you polled Alabama, 
I suspect that in Alabama, you'd still have a majority who support the ability of people to have kids if they are infertile for one reason or another. So I think even in Alabama, this particular decision will be quite unpopular, but we'll see. Yeah, you've already had a Republican legislator who's introduced a bill to reverse this. And, you know, often these come down to battle of the anecdotes, but here they are built in, right? You have couples striving to have children. That's a very sympathetic picture. A couple quick legal points, I, you know, first to reinforce what the senator said. Already three IVF clinics in Alabama, including the largest one, have just shut down, you know, because the potential liability is stratospheric. Second, Judge Parker, who wrote the concurring opinion, but he's the chief judge in the Alabama Supreme Court, he is really maybe the most fervent kind of pro-life advocate. But I just want to say I agree. I think people miss this a little because there was shock and outrage. But look, Dobbs itself upheld a Mississippi scheme that recognized the weight in the unborn child. It drew a line at 15 weeks. But if you're recognizing that weight and you're saying, as Dobbs says at the end, basically the interests of the mother or the parent amount to zero, they're just the you know rational basis under the law, same as do you like chocolate or vanilla, then they, it seems to me even going all the way back to conception kind of follows. EJ, on your point about your student, because one obvious way to criticize this, even under current law, is to say that it imposes religious views on the country. But one can try to hold to this notion without necessarily embracing the judge's religious fervor here, right? This is, you know, in theory, what Dobbs permits states to do overall, just say this is how we should protect things. And it's not because I'm such a Christian, but just that, you know, I don't see any difference and we have to go all the way back to the very, very beginning. Well, there are some very thoughtful academics who have written books about how life is created, who have made arguments that life begins at conception without relying on the religious tradition. That's absolutely right. And there is an argument that people can make, and then some piece of the right to life movement would fall into that category. I think the difficulty with this decision is that it didn't go that way. You know, it opened itself up to challenge that the really shrewd, and, and I don't use shrewd negatively, I mean sophisticated right to life folks no, that's not what they want to argue because they don't want to cross that. They don't want to raise issues connected to church and state. They don't want this to be a theological argument. They want it to be a philosophical argument available to everybody. So it's dangerous, actually, for someone on the right to life side who takes this view to rationalize it in a court decision on the basis of uh, religious thinking. Now, you can argue Thomas Aquinas is a philosopher as well as a theologian and all of that. But I think they just crossed a line here that good lawyers would have told them not to cross. Politically, they've introduced into the debate this whole idea of theocracy, of states becoming theocracies, which, uh, you know, Americans by and large don't go for. And we saw at CPAC this week, Jack Prosobiec, this big, I won't mention the name of the uh, orange haired politician whom he supports, but a very big uh, and increasingly influential far-right conservative said explicitly in this organization, we don't believe in democracy, we believe in the rule of God. 
And uh, this, you know, is getting a lot of replay on social media. And I think it's connected to this Alabama decision and will become a good uh, talking point for Democrats turning out their base this fall. To echo what John said, how is it at a time when a shrinking number of Americans identify themselves as religious, let alone Christian, that the strength of the Christian right appears more and more robust? Because we have a political system that rewards a very active minority voice. I mean, you saw that in the repeal of Roe v. Wade. I mean, the irony of all of that is that for years, the Republican Party has slowly drawn off some of traditional Democrat support by saying, we're right to life, come with us, we're going to reverse Roe v. Wade. And as we say in the vernacular of politics, they are the dog that caught the car, right? Now they have this mess and they can't figure out how they're going to unwind it. And all of the silent folks, the people who didn't think there was a stake in this, are now saying, Oh, this means I'm not going to have access to IVF for my grandchildren. This means that if I'm sick, I have an infection or a risk infection, I'm still going to have to carry an unviable fetus to term. I mean, all of a sudden, these consequences become very real for the American public. And so what, what I would say is when you look at kind of who participates, you know, there aren't a lot of people participating in organized religion. In America, that number is dwindling. There also is a very loud minority of people who participate in politics. The broader we can bring people in, I think the more we're going to see a lot of pushback. It, it can, if I can just give one example, and it's school board elections. Okay, so school board elections, you have a minority of people who come in, they want to ban books, they want to prevent teachers from teaching certain curriculum. And all of a sudden, parents kind of look at this and say, I think teachers ought to be the ones deciding this. They come to those meetings, they run for the school board. And even in states like North Dakota, those people do not get elected, the radicals. And so it's just a matter of people waking up and seeing the consequences and then participating. You saw it in the midterms. I love Joe Biden. I think he's done a great job. But let's be honest. The reason why Democrats survived what was going to be a catastrophic midterm was the reversal of Roe v. Wade. It woke people up. School boards are very revealing because sometimes right-wing candidates win on low turnout elections and then turnout soars when middle-of-the-road parents say, we got to come out. But on your point, you know, we still do have an awful lot of people in the United States who go to church, attend synagogue, go to mosques or temples. But it is also true that there is a decline in religious affiliation. And you ask, how can that be with the rise of religious conservatism? There's a great scholar out at Berkeley called David Hollinger, who wrote a book called recently called Christianity's American Fate. And the subtitle says a lot. It says how religion became more conservative and society more secular. And I think what you're seeing is a significant secession from religion from formal religion, there's still a lot of spiritual people in this category, because they see religion, particularly forms of Christianity, as moving to the right. This is especially true of younger people. So that the people who think of themselves as religious, not all, and certainly not Black Americans, who are among the most religious uh, folks in the country by the polls, but you see a lot of people seceding from religion. So you have, we're more polarized because of this shift. So I think those two things actually, for the moment, are reinforcing each other. 
there seems to be a decline in religious affiliation seems to have stopped, but it's much higher than it was 10 or 20 years ago. That's a really great point. Let me just add a couple quick things. First, on the sort of common sense versus ideological purity spectrum, and you had part of the litany center, but we also have to put in here IUDs, which technically terminate fetuses after fertilization. We have to put in there morning after pills. You know, a number of things that I think the a broad swath of society without trying to confront Aquinas and Exodus would say that really should be left alone. Second, I just want to state my doctrinal piece in response to what Jonathan said, which is there's a lot of arguments one can make about when life begins. But the important point, philosophical, legal, etc. here, has to be when is the fetus become a human being? And that's the point that's so often overlooked. It's really a very terribly different designation. There's all kinds of arguments. It's probably insoluble. But the notion that, well, you know, there's some life in an embryo, I, I think, is really a bit of a canard. What's fascinating about Roe v. Wade, and people forget about Roe v. Wade, is it took on that question and it treated pregnancy differently in the first trimester, the second trimester, and the third trimester. And it allowed more regulation in the third trimester. Now, there are a lot of you know, people who are down the line right to lifers don't agree with that. Uh, but you know, Roe was much more complicated uh, than people cast it as being. And I think that's really important. It goes to your point. It's also a problem for conservatives who are now trying to get behind their leader's 16-week standard. He wants national legislation to ban abortion after 16 weeks, and there are going to be a lot of people in his movement for whom that is not good enough because they believe life is established well before 16 weeks. You know, Florida has a six-week ban. So that that's reflective of a pretty large chunk of the anti-abortion movement that um, would want an earlier date. You saw it when Roe was overturned, the marches, tons of protection at conception. And you're right, Jonathan, there is a lot of people out there who believe that it is, I mean, they're the pure thinkers. They're the ones who say, this is life. We need to protect life. That leads to the consequence you saw in Alabama but it also creates a huge problem for the Republican Party trying to find a moderate position that the people would support. Let's take an exit on a political note. Is the DNC happy about this chortling in its headquarters that the Alabama Supreme Court did something so extreme? I think the DNC is saying, we told you so. And every day, whether it's risking a woman's life in Texas, whether it is forcing a 12-year-old to carry a baby to term, all of these stories add to the we told you so. This is serious and it affects your life. It's not like some abstract, you know, a carried interest issue that you might have in taxation. This is something that affects dramatically at least half the population who feels pretty much connected to their rights in terms of their bodily autonomy. I don't think anyone's chortling. I think people are saying, see, we told you so. On your point about the 12-year-old, um, this is a nepotistic uh, plug, but if you want to see the devastation that this leads to in real life, our daughter Charlotte Alter, who writes for Time magazine, uh, wrote a breathtakingly sad 
piece about a 12 year old girl in Mississippi who had been raped and was forced to carry her baby to term. Politically, I, I don't think anybody should ever chortle about this issue. But I think that if you're asking the question, do Democrats think they win on this issue? The answer is yes. And you've had test after test. You saw it in the 2022 elections where Senator Heitkamp is right. It helped Democrats push back against what was supposed to be a wet red wave that didn't really materialize. Yes, they took over the House narrowly, but not by what they expected. You saw it in 2023 tested in the Virginia legislative races where Republicans campaigned on crime and Democrats campaigned on abortion. There were other issues, but that was the confrontation. Abortion, Trump, crime, and Democrats won those elections. Even in Kentucky in 2023, Steve Beshear talked about his opponent's position being very radical on rape, incest, and life of the mother. And then in the Swazi race, yes, he neutralized in, in Long Island that special election we just went through. Yes, he kind of neutralized the immigration issue, but the Republicans really thought immigration would trump uh, the abortion issue. Again, it didn't. So I think the, the nervousness you're seeing among Republicans is all you need to know about how they are worried about this. And they're still struggling to find a position that is good enough for their strong right to life base and moderate enough for other voters. And as we've been saying, it's very hard, both philosophically and politically, to find that place. Youngkin thought that he had the magic elixir, right? Yeah, right. The 15-week ban, and it failed miserably. And so, you know, he thought he was going to project himself into the national scene by being the savior on choice, and it failed. And all of this, I just want to add, are the wages of Dobbs. And I went back and read it. There was this flavor in the Alito opinion that, you know, the terrible uh, opinion has really caused us to be fighting as a society for so long. And now we're going to have peace and everything will return. And, you know, it really has. All, everything you're saying kind of puts the lie to that. All right. So more to come, I think, on this issue with four other states having enacted since Dobbs the same Life begins at conception, and as, as I think everyone recognizes, things follow from that logically, but not so much as a matter of common sense. Okay, let's move on. Uh, we learned this week about a former FBI informant named Alexander Smirnov and special counsel David Weiss. Remember, not the DOJ, who could be somehow disparaged as the deep state or whatever, the very holdover Republican U.S. attorney who's prosecuting Biden, basically charges him with lying about Joe Biden and Hunter and the alleged dealings in Ukraine. A lot going on there, important law enforcement details, which I'm glad to answer if anyone wants to know. But I wanted to zero in again on the politics. Hunter, he's now been charged. I don't know about throwing the book at him, but legitimately they uncovered these crimes about taxes and guns. But the genesis of all the trouble that he's taken from House Republicans and I think of the impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden that seems to be, you know, wounded and limping along really does come from Smirnov's information. So let me start there. How central has this information now discredited been to the effort by Republicans to go after Biden, make initial moves to impeach Joe Biden, and where does this episode leave them? I'll take a stab. Why do you think facts matter? There's never been any proof points. They've never been able to. So this is just another 
example for us to realize that there's nothing there, but it doesn't matter because as long as they continue to spin out the lies, the people who want to believe that Joe Biden and his son are corrupt are going to believe it, whether their prime witness is in fact a Russian spy or at least collaborating with Russians. I I want to make a point about this though. And I think it's really interesting that they never talk about the gun charge. Do you know how many people in my state have had DUIs and addiction problems that still have concealed carry permits? And how many have been charged federally after they throw away their guns? Yeah, this is a whole thing I've written about. Yeah, Yeah, This is dangerous territory for Second Amendment people. Totally. The term that came to mind when you brought up this topic was fruit of the poisoned tree. And this tree is really poisoned uh, by... Uh, what we have just found out, uh, courtesy of this indictment. And you really saw, as Senator Heitkamp is right, they're going to try to continue with this impeachment no matter what it takes, uh, because they are committed to impeachment first and find the rationale later. But they really had to squirm this week and, and kind of do extraordinary gyrations to continue to justify uh, what they were doing in this case. And It is remarkable that we are back to Russia again. We have been thinking about Russia. Obviously, we're all thinking about Russia with Navalny's death with Ukraine. But we've been thinking about Russia's engagement in our politics since the 2016 election. And it was just remarkable to have that all come back to us one more time. And I don't know how many votes that changes out there. But I think it it really does put a lot of these charges uh, in a very different light. And I think it does put the impeachers in a difficult position. 100%. It's not simply that he's lying, but he's in a through line with 2016 of Russian intelligence trying to manipulate us. John, let me follow up on EJ's point. You know, one vote margin, Johnson and that. Do you think, in fact, whether or not he has no choice, that he will absolutely follow through. He has a a bit of an exit ramp now. I'm talking about the Speaker of the House in saying, okay, we did our investigation. We, as, you know, good statesmen and stateswomen don't see enough to go forward. Or do you think it's a foregone conclusion that even with the loss of their best uh, witness and really very little to show that they forge ahead? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm cynical about them and the remorselessness of their lying. Um, But I do think this has changed some of the politics on the ground, possibly in some very significant ways. So Sean Hannity mentioned this witness now, clear Russian agent and liar, 85 times last year. Once a night on Fox, they referred to the Biden crime family. Now, they're not going to stop picking on Hunter Biden. And they've got a they've got a, a case that they can use. But this takes the air out of their efforts to bring down the president. Impeachment was never going to actually happen, but this makes it, I think, significantly less likely that it moves forward in a way that dominates the headlines because the press, which was already skeptical of impeachment, is now not in any mood to humor these Republicans in the name of phony balance. And so I don't think you're going to see much emphasis behind this at this point. I I think there's a chance that Speaker Johnson takes the exit ramp. And it's the death of one of 
the orange monsters talking points, which is Russia hoax, Russia hoax, Russia hoax. And, you know, he convinced a lot of people that this whole thing was a big hoax. He can continue to do that at his rallies, but it will get at least a little bit less traction than it had in the past because of this guy I like to call Yakov Smirnoff, even though he's not a comedian. <laughs> Don't drink the vodka. Yeah. <laughs> I think the the voters to stay focused on here are not not the base. They're going to believe any kind of crap they hear about the Bidens and, and Russia. It's the independents. So if you're an independent voter, a, a Republican-leaning independent who thinks all politicians are crooks, you can be excused for thinking maybe the Bidens were dirty. Because, you know, Hunter didn't exactly acquit himself. James Biden has been an influence peddler. We'll see whether that bears out, but go no, ahead. No, no, no. I'm not talking about in this case. I'm talking about more broadly over the last 25, 30 years, the president's brother and one of his sons did a lot of this. But not with the president. But not, but not with the president. So they don't have any traction on this leading to the president. And that's a real political uh, blow for them. And I think a fair-minded independent will go, okay, I've heard enough about this. Yeah, Hunter Biden's a sleaze, but Joe Biden is not, and they don't have anything on him. Could I make two quick points, Harry? One is I salute Jonathan and anyone on a show like this who says, I don't know, to a question, because it takes more courage to say, I don't know, than to make up an answer. So good for you. That's actually the genesis of this whole podcast. We were on TV like swamis, and we like, let's have a real conversation. The second point I want to make is, I don't think that Mike Johnson can completely back off from impeachment. He's going to have to do other things in the coming weeks that are going to offend his right wing. If he wants to keep the government from shutting down, He's going to have to make some kind of deal with Biden. And no matter what it is, uh, the right wing of his caucus will say it's a sellout, even if it's not, even if it is from a realistic point of view, a relatively good deal from their point of view. And I think he may not get a vote on impeachment, but I don't think he's going to shut it down because I think it would the cost of doing that for him would be too high. He'll keep the inquiry alive, you're saying. I agree with that because I think it's it's also consistent with this. We want punishment. Well, the pound of flesh that he allowed them to do by impeaching Ali Mayorkas, is that going to satisfy the appetite for punishment on impeachment? I don't think so. I think they can hide their lack of evidence by saying, we're researching it. We're hearing you know horrible things every day. And they can just bury this investigation without ever taking it out. And so I think they're going to continue. But just just a little rumor. I think their caucus may lose a member in the next couple of days. Wow. You heard it here first. Might be the congressman from Montana. Just to gossip a little bit. There's a reason why Rosendale backed out of that Senate race. The rumor is that he impregnated a 20 year old staff person. How great is it to have a former senator and head of the Institute of Politics now unburdened, able to say what she likes? This is important what the senator just said, because if you take that Montana seat and the New York seat that Swazi just won, you know, their margin is really shrinking. And that allows the possibility of possibly a discharge petition on the Ukraine aid. There's there's a number of things where you've got three or four Republicans. I mean, Chairman Turner just went to Ukraine. I mean, there are 
people in that caucus who are strong supporters of aid to Ukraine, and they don't want to be disloyal to their speaker. But if push comes to shove and you only need three of them, uh, you could possibly get them. On that point, I think one of the interesting things to look at are the people who have already announced for honorable reasons that they are not running. I'm thinking, say, a Mike Gallagher from uh, Wisconsin, which really surprised me, actually. The people who aren't running may feel more room to support Ukraine aid and to push it through. Now, maybe party loyalty is still strong enough on these kinds of issues that they won't, but there is a real opening there. And as Jonathan said, with the margin getting as small as it is, it won't take many. Although I do think on the vote, you'll probably lose some Democrats because of the controversy over Israel and Gaza. So they'll probably need more than a couple of Republicans to push this through. Point is that signing a discharge petition is much more dramatic and anti-loyal than voting for the aid. And so to get people to get it on the floor, you're going to pick up a lot of Republican, I think, votes if it gets on the floor, people who would not sign a discharge petition. And the more general point is that the dynamics aren't simply has the margin tipped. It's as it gets closer, people who would, you know, vote otherwise in purple districts or their conscience fear less. And that changes very much their own calculations. All right. So we leave that here for now. But again, it's playing out very much. You know, he right now today or Monday now will be subject to a new detention hearing before a district judge. But how the sort of factual uh, fruit of the poison tree, as it were, that as EJ identifies it will play out politically will be, uh, I think, something to, to watch closely. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues that are prominent in the news. Today's feature is about the Coogan Law, a California law designed to protect the earnings of child actors. And to explain the issue, we welcome Allison Stoner. Allison is a multidisciplinary artist, actor, author, and speaker. During their childhood years, Allison performed in over 200 films, TV shows, and tours, including Disney Channel's Camp Rock and Phineas and Ferb, and film franchises Step Up and Cheaper by the Dozen. They remain active in the voiceover world and can be heard in The Incredibles 2, Pete the Cat, and Lego Batman, among many others. They are also a founder of Movement Genius, a digital studio that works to use movement to improve mental and emotional health. So I give you Allison Stoner on the Coogan Law. Celebrated child actors are particularly subject to exploitation by family members or other unscrupulous adults who want to appropriate their large earnings. California has been in the vanguard for passing laws to provide a measure of protection. California first sought to address the issue in 1939 with the California Child Actors Bill, also known as the Coogan Law. Jackie Coogan was a world-famous child celebrity in the 1920s. When he was seven years old, Jackie was cast alongside Charlie Chaplin in the 1921 movie The Kid, a film that remains a classic today. Coogan's stardom continued throughout the 1920s. 
During that time, his family was able to accumulate an estimated fortune of three to four million dollars, more than 50 million in today's dollars, from the combination of his film contracts and an extensive merchandise catalog. In 1935, Coogan turned 21, and he expected to assume control over his large estate. Instead, he discovered that his mother and stepfather had burned through the majority of his wealth through extravagant purchases. Coogan's mother claimed the boy wasn't owed anything, that, quote, no promises were made, and that Jackie was a bad boy. Even after Coogan won his legal suit against his guardians, he was left with only $126,000. A large figure, but a small fraction of his earned wealth. The story of Coogan's financial family drama shocked the nation and quickly led to the passage in 1938 of the Coogan Law. The original act gave judges the power to require a portion of a child actor's income be set aside in a trust fund or other savings account. The money would be saved from a child's income after removing managerial fees and would be available to them as an adult. This early rendition, however, was flawed and open to abuse. Many parents of child actors simply listed themselves as managers, which permitted them to pocket their child's gross earnings as part of the law's allowance for managerial fees. Shirley Temple and Macaulay Culkin are among the child stars who were left with little of their wealth after reaching adulthood. In 2000, the California state passed amendments to the Coogan Law that require 15% of a child actor's gross income to be placed in a blocked trust account, known as a Coogan account. The law also designates earnings of a child actor as the child's property and makes clear that a parent or guardian is a fiduciary who owes a duty of care to the child. Similar laws have been passed in New York, Illinois, Louisiana, and New Mexico. For Talking Feds, I'm Allison Stoner. Thank you, Allison Stoner. In 2023, Allison launched Dear Hollywood, a tell-all podcast about the toddler-to-train-wreck pipeline that young artists often face in the entertainment industry. You can find it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we start with two of our absolute favorite things, dessert and wine, and combine them into one delicious topic, dessert wines. What are they exactly and how are they made? Grab a fork and a glass, and let's dig into the sweet subject matter. Dessert wines are just as you'd hope they'd be, sweet wines that are typically served after a meal. Sometimes they're served with a dessert, and sometimes they're served as dessert. And then there are those times in between. The smoothness and lack of acidity make for a pleasant and easygoing taste that pairs perfectly with relaxation. I reach for dessert wines when I'm craving something sweet to enjoy, while unwinding in the evening, or after a big meal. To make a sweet dessert wine, the fermentation process is halted just prior to the yeast converting all the sugar to alcohol. Interrupting the fermentation ensures that there is sugar remaining in the wine, which gives us that sweetness we crave. But the amount of sweetness varies from wine to wine, and there's no shortage of options. Just pop into Total Wine & More and you'll see many, many varieties from ports to ice wines, 
to so turn into Hungarian Tokai. Dessert wines come in both still and sparkling, too. They're also made from both red and white grapes, and they can be served chilled in a small glass or room temperature, proving that really, when it comes to dessert wines, anything goes. Hungry? Thirsty? Maybe a little of both? Stop into your local Total Wine to check out our large selection of dessert wines, and feel free to chat with a helpful guide for a recommendation. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and more for today's A Spirited Debate. I wanted to spend a few minutes, finally, on a a really pretty political uh, topic for Talking Feds, but we're really fortunate to have John Alter with us. And he wrote, I think, a very influential, much-watched piece on his uh, substack that I highly uh, recommend. But as someone who'd been... Contrary to say me, I'll just put that in there, uh, I, you know, really lobbying perhaps for the Democrats to have a new standard bearer and replace Biden. Now seeing Biden's being at the top of the ticket as inevitable, uh, he's got a really interesting piece that I recommend to all, but I thought we could all discuss about what to do about the factors that caused him to be doubtful now that Biden is the candidate. Let me serve it up, but start with you, please, John, starting with the main kind of question. How does or should Biden shake the widespread assumption that his cognition is going downhill? Well, he has to, he has to prove that. As you indicated, I spent a lot of last year trying to convince him to get out of the race, including in a story in the New York Times. But it's too late now. That ship has sailed. Uh, his wife very much wants him to run. He's running So the question is how to drag him over the finish line. And I think you start with the premise that he's old, but he's not senile. This is what everybody says who deals with him. That has to be shown to the American public. You know, so Jon Stewart in his first show last week said, if he's so sharp in these private meetings, why aren't they running a camera in there to show it? So he has to do some of that. But he doesn't have to worry that, you know, he might slip up a little bit if he applies what I call the old shoe strategy, which is to get people comfortable with the fact that Biden has been doing this for many, many years. I mean, EJ and I started covering him in 1988, and I can remember on the trail that year, yes, he was a lot more vigorous, he spoke more fluidly, but he would mix up foreign leaders then. That's just what Joe Biden is like, all right? And so if he gets out there and a lot, and he's given fewer interviews than any recent president, if his staff stops being afraid to let him get out there and starts trusting him to get out there, then he can get people comfortable with the fact that he's old and wise, but not senile and drooling. And if they don't do that, if they think they can run a basement strategy If they don't trust him, then they are under an obligation to urge him to leave the race. It's one or the other. It's binary. If you don't trust your candidate, you can't allow him to stay in the race. So they they have to get him out there. Now, when he's out there, it's old shoe strategy. And, and, you know, they say, well, what about these mistakes you made, you know, Mr. President? His answer should be the same thing every time. I am not the candidate for president who confused Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in a single interview. In other words, he has to go right right back at them. 
right back at the reporters on that and say that this this other guy has the same thing. Now, people go, well, people don't believe that about Trump. They don't think he's too old. That also can help Biden because it helps him win the expectations game. Everything in politics is about expectations. So if he goes into the debates and he, he needs to challenge Trump to a debate, they need to be presidential commission debates, but he needs to do that to prove that he's up to it. And he goes into these debates really underestimated the way Ronald Reagan was when he was debating uh, Walter Mondale. And then he gets out there. And even if he messes up in the first debate in the second debate, you know, does reasonably well, which we know from the last time that he can do when he told Trump to shut up, man. Remember that he can do it when he does that. He will exceed expectations and survive. And then I think the last thing that he needs to do is I call it hug your boo-boos. He needs to have some supporter do one of these blooper reels that gets a lot of attraction on their own candidate, but all old stuff. So very short bites. You don't see the fluid articulate Biden, but you see him with black hair, little hair, you know, from 1988, from 1996, screwing things up. There's some jujitsu. Yeah. Right. And so then the public starts to realize he's not senile. This is just the old shoe. This is just our Joe Biden who does this. He's a wise leader. The other guy is a chaos monster. And we're going to go with wisdom, even if he is old. You know, you need to put Joe where he's best. And that's when he is with people, showing empathy, caring about human beings, being who he is, because that's who he is. I mean, it's genuine. And so I, I don't disagree with you, Jonathan, but I think the theory of their cases were not Donald Trump. And until they switched their mindset around, the theory of the case has to be running as, as if you were running the first time running to be president of the United States. And if you're just relying on not being Donald Trump, that's not a good strategy. You have to be the candidate for president, which means you have to perform. And I think putting him in situations where he always performs well. I was at the prayer breakfast with the president. The president gave a brilliant, beautiful speech, absolutely beautiful speech, you know, with little bits where he went off script and he can do it. And I think that they have that, I mean, I think they hold their breath way too much. They call us bedwetters, right, when we worry about it, but they're breath holders. And I don't. I think that they should just let him be, let him do what he's going to do. You hold your breath too long, you run out of oxygen. Uh, Senator's right. I think that it matters a lot what situations you put him in. And Jonathan's right. I think Biden himself once said, I'm a gaff machine, which could be the lead in to his Real. We know those of us who covered Biden for a long time know he's done these things. But I think it's they've got to put him out there, but be very careful. Senator Heitkamp is right. He's good with people. He's especially good with people who have gone through suffering. If you did a Google search and looked up empathy is his superpower in his first year in office, you heard that a lot in connection with COVID, with people suffering. He's got to do a lot of that. Secondly, he is really good when he's giving a speech on something that he is passionate about or angry about. And that's where he shows the most energy. Look at clips from talking to the UAW workers on the picket line is one good example. He actually can be quite funny. Look at clips from when he went 
Uh, now, granted, it was a, you know somebody wrote good material, but his speech at the um, White House Correspondents' Dinner was really funny and very effective. And so I think they have to put him out there, but in settings that work. But the other thing is, I'd like to figure out why his popularity doesn't move. One thing we can agree on, he cannot change his age. That's going to stay where it is, and it's going to go up. I'm really curious what other factors might be holding him down. We focus so much on the age issue, um, including the media, but I think all the conversation. Figure out, is there anything else that's holding him back that's keeping him in the low 40s? Is there anything he could do differently? Or is there any part of him that he could emphasize more? And I'd really like to see more research on that because I'd like to understand that better than I do. I have a little bit of a theory about this. It's not based on any new survey data, but you and I, EJ, we've believed for 40 years the cliche that elections are always about the future. They're not about the past. It's not you know, reward for what you've accomplished in the past, unfortunately. And a lot of Democrats are, I think, being kind of short-sighted and saying, well, if he would just talk more about his achievements, yes, he should do that, but that's not the centerpiece of winning. The centerpiece of winning is projecting a vision for the future, which is hard to do when you're in your 80s, but he still needs to do that. And what are his promises for a second term? But that's what the State of the Union is for. That is what the State of the Union is but he better have some pretty easy to digest ideas for what he's going to do. And I think one of the reasons his numbers have been so flat and he's lost his connection to the American people is that during COVID, they got checks from the government. And even though some of them were from under Biden, they attributed to Trump. And if you go out and talk to voters, including Democratic voters, a lot of them will say, I got the check under Trump, right? And so there has to be something. I, I don't mean that he needs to you know, promise some new government program, but politics is about how you slice up the pie. And I think a lot of voters are going, okay, yeah, I have a job, but you know, where is my bigger slice of the pie? And there's no articulation of what that might be. And so when he does this thing on student loans last week, that's good for the 200,000 people that it helps, but there are a hell of a lot of other people who don't qualify. So I think he's probably going to have to explain that a little more and say, you know, I wanted to do this for more students and former students, but I couldn't get the Republicans to agree. I don't think I can let this go without saying the border has hurt him tremendously. I expect that he's going to come out with, as he did looking at amnesty, changing by executive order some of the amnesty, he's going to have to come up with a much more robust provision. And I would say, EJ, if you said, what would be my speculation on why his numbers won't move? It's a story that Claire McCaskill used to tell about the guy who was at the gas station who said, you know, I voted for you once, Claire, but I don't know that I'm going to do it again because I know the Democrats, therefore, you know, Black Lives Matter and therefore this and therefore that, but who's for me? And I think there is this sense that Biden has pandered to interest groups to keep them under the tent, and that has excluded a lot of people. And so I think they don't see him as an inclusive president. And the border is just symptomatic. The irony is Biden's program is sending a lot of money into precisely the places that voted for Donald Trump, the small towns all across America. 
We are out of time in a conversation I wish could go on three more hours. We just have a minute for our Talking Five question. And it is today, Donald Trump has just come out with his new uh, fancy shoes. What should Joe Biden's product release be in response? I was going to say it has to be really cool aviator glasses that have a great rear view mirror in them. Uh, that uh, people can look back and see who's coming at them, but laser-like focus going forward. I know that's more than five words, but I would say aviator glasses, they're cool. So my product for Biden is an app that tells you either how much your real wages have gone up or how much your 401k has increased during his time in office. Three words, Taylor Swift tickets. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And I'm going with Joe's multicolored expandable kitchen table. And we are out of time. Thank you so much, Jonathan, EJ, and Senator Heitkamp. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Oh, and some exciting news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. All you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message. That's 727-279-5339. You can also email us your questions at questions at talkingfeds.com. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine. Associate producer, Meredith McCabe. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. And production assistance by Akshaj Turbailu. Thanks very much to Allison Stoner for explaining the Coogan Law. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. And speaking of Philip Glass, if you find yourself in the New York area today, Monday, February 26th, it's the 37th and last Tibet House annual benefit concert that Phil organizes on behalf of Tibet and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and that features a phenomenal spectrum of musicians and artists. So if you're around, tickets are available online or at Carnegie Hall box office. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.